You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Alex. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Good. How are you? I can't complain. And as you know, I'm not the type to complain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I should confess that you and I know each other. That's why that, that was like an inside joke. I've never known you to complain. You've never known okay. me to complain about, about anything. So listen, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Alexander Wolf, for many decades a distinguished sports writer, uh, staff writer at Sports Illustrated of some renown. You've written a number of books. They have tended to be about sports, but the book we're going to talk about that you've written, which is just out, is not about sports. You did manage to work a reference to an NBA player or two in. But uh, the book is called End Papers, A Family Story of Books, War, Escape, and Home. Very handsome jacket. I like the jacket a lot. Uh, here's what it looks like. I'm holding it up. Um, and, uh, you know, as I suggested, we know each other. We went to college together. Uh, we actually uh, played a little basketball together. Sometimes we were journalists together. And I went to your wedding and met your father there. As we will see, he figures centrally in this book. Uh, the other person who figures centrally in this book is his father, uh, Kurt Wolf, uh, 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 an important figure in the publishing uh, business, both in Europe and in the United States, as we'll uh, explain. And uh, it's, um, you know, the book is about largely your grandfather and your father. It who are both worth writing about for different reasons, but for related reasons and for kind of intertwined reasons. Um, this must be a, a kind of a, a tough book to do the elevator pitch for, I would think. Yeah, I'm kind of amazed when people with podcasts want to talk about it. Um, yeah, you you did that roundabout intro, but that's really the only way into it. I mean, it's, I suppose the other hook might be that we're in this moment of where we're figuring out whether the United States wants to continue to welcome immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, and th the irony of looking across the ocean and seeing Germany of all countries throwing its doors open to, to asylum seekers and uh, unambiguously denouncing neo-Nazism and all sorts of other things. I mean, in diving into the story, I was much more interested, obviously, in these two immediate paternal forebears of mine. And then upon moving to Berlin to start working on it, researching it, talking to cousins, all that, going to archives, all these events started to happen that seemed to cast light on what I was doing. So what might have been a very tidy family story suddenly became one for which I guess being a journalist uh, was a little more valuable. I mean, I will say that I didn't really realize how rich some of the letters would be that were left yeah. for me to, mm -hmm. to rummage through. I, you know, I knew that my dad was pretty fastidious about writing home to his mom from the Russian front and then the Western front uh, as a soldier of the third Reich. Cause that's just the kind of person he was. He wrote home to his mom who was alone in Munich. Um, and of course I knew that my grandfather was a passionate letter writer. Um, but then even, it's weird. There's this patrilineal spine to the book of these two men and and me, but then there are all these women, aunts and grandmothers and step-grandmother who are kind of this Greek chorus, and they comment on everything that's going on. And, mm. and their letters uh, astonished me, some of them anyway, with, with just how thoughtful and, and gracefully written they were. Yeah. So uh, people may have gleaned from that one kind of uh... – well, maybe more than one interesting fact, but uh, one thing that's a big part of the book is that your father did serve in the German military, whereas his father uh, was a Jewish exile from Germany. Um, and uh, we'll explain all that. Uh, your 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 father was uh, born Christian, as his as his mother was. Yeah, and my grandfather was of Jewish descent. Now you have to go way back to the early 19th century to find the last ancestor of mine who actually identified as a Jew. But as you and I both know, the Nazis really didn't care how you identified. They, they made that decision. 
mm-hmm. uh, based on all the records that they had access to. So he, I, I would say that he was on on the run and went into exile more so because he published degenerate right. authors, and right. many of them were Jewish. Um, and my dad, as a well, I guess one fourth Jewish, if you want to play the Nazi game there. Um, he apparently was one of 150,000 German men of that generation of par- partly Jewish descent who served for the Third mm-hmm. Reich, which I didn't know. I mean, so many things I didn't know going in. I mean, I had this sheltered suburban American upbringing, largely because my dad had left that behind when he emigrated and just wanted to raise my sisters and me in this in this bubble. And I asked some questions, but there were so many things that I, I had no clue of. Yeah. And that's, I mean, a lot of, I mean, one of the several ways to describe what the book is about is, is it's about kind of the, the mystery of moral accountability. Uh, and, and you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, what your father's role had been, whether, uh, he is in some sense culpable, uh, and, uh, because he hadn't told you much about it. Um, and then there are different kinds of, of moral questions, I guess, surrounding your, uh, your grandfather, Kurt Wolf, who was, uh, among other things, a very prolific philanderer, I guess. Uh, and, um, uh, but, uh, I, there's one, I, I think maybe the way to start the story is to, to back up and, uh, talk about Kurt, the grandfather. But first, I want to ask you one more question about your father. I knew you fairly well in college, but I'm pretty sure, maybe I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure you did not mention your father's involvement in the German military until after college. Did you, did you, did you I mean, it sounds like from your book, I, I gather your, your father didn't exactly go out of his way to talk about it. He would, he would finesse the question. If so, you know, like, he, he would say, yeah, we came from Germany and, you know, around the time of the, you know, there was the war and, and, and so on. And people would probably just infer something other than that. He served in the German military. That was fine with him. Did you make a point of not uh, talking about it in college or do you remember? That, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I consciously made a point of not talking about it in college. I mean, the. Um, I do remember when I was very young, eight, nine, 10 years old, it was popular in our neighborhood in New Jersey to play army. Mm-hmm. And of course, every other playmate I had on the block had a, a dad who had served in World War II. Um, and my dad never, he, he never misled on that to me. So I would, you know, I'd tell playmates cause I was eight, nine, 10 years old. <laughs> hey, my dad was in the army small. too. Yeah. So there, there was that. And then we moved from New Jersey to a predominantly Jewish suburb in, in uh, suburban Rochester, New York. And um, I was old enough and perceptive enough to, to grasp that this was a little bit awkward if I was going to make friends and if there were, mm-hmm. there were going to be girlfriends. Um, we joined the Jewish community center. That's what you did. It's like belonging to the wild. Well, you've, you've got a good last name for it. Did, did, did a lot of people think you were Jewish? Yes, a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. And and truth be told, my dad's part Jewish, really, ethnically, um, if there is such a thing. So, um, yeah, my dad did finesse it, you know, and I think the fact that his dad had, you know, all those ennobling accents of the persecuted exile because he had gone, left Berlin within 48 hours after the Reichstag burned and had this stable of degenerate authors that was a kind of Trojan horse for my own dad to come over. In fact, when my dad made it over within a week, he's suddenly up in Vermont at this compound where these emigre Austrian psychoanalysts would spend every summer. They had studied with Freud. They were Jewish and they had all sorts of musical friends who would play. And my dad's suddenly there. He's three years out of out of the Wehrmacht and he's there. And then he winds up in a house in Princeton as a grad student in chemistry that Albert Einstein himself actually holds the mortgage on. Right. On Wigan Street, right off Nassau. And um so he even though he'd been raised in a very non-Jewish environment after the divorce in Germany by his mother, entirely non-Jewish mom and stepfather, um here he was in the States kind of instantly being reintroduced to this exile world. 
Right. Um, so my dad's experience was this weird schizoid thing, whereas his father's experience was always in that aesthetic world of books and art and music and um, mm. where these dis- these sort of Nazi distinctions are, are people are trying to overcome them and they're mm-hmm. not they're not relevant to him in the way he thinks. Mm-hmm. Just quickly, speaking of Einstein, your father had the occasion to drive Einstein home, I guess, after a lecture or drive in a car with him. And uh, a lecture, was it Nils Bohr or Max Planck? It, it was, It was. I think it was. It was Nils Bohr. So a, a quantum physics lecture, your father's <laughs> was, you know, he hadn't understood a word of it. And he was so he's almost afraid to bring it up to Einstein. He says to Einstein, what would you think of it? And Einstein says, Nils Bohr never makes any sense, basically. <laughs> of course, Einstein never really accepted quantum physics. Um, but uh, so, okay, so let's let's get back to Kurt, the grandfather. And we should say, again, he made a splash in publishing before World War One. Um, in Germany, for starters. Now, he had uh, had a background that was not exactly culturally impoverished, I would say. I mean, among the, ho- the household guests when he was a, a boy was Johann Brahms uh, on one, one occasion. And, and uh, you know, both both he and your father's uh, mother, biological mother, were, were upper class um, in Germany. Um, in fact, a, 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 a Jewish ancestor in your father's lineage had, had earned the von... Uh, prefix, which I didn't even realize you could do if you weren't a Christian, but uh, th- this goes way back, uh, right? Uh, yeah, this goes way back to the early to, to it, an avowedly Jewish forebear of mine who was the court banker in, in Baden, in Karlsruhe, who apparently did all these wonderful things for the state that the Grand Duke decided to ennoble him, Jew though, though he was, and it was one of his his sons who converted and became notorious. Um, and actually was involved in a couple of mm-hmm. duels uh, that sparked, in one instance, sparked a, a big riot that became a sensation around Europe. Yeah, well, there was a lot of, there were anti-Semitic riots, I guess, in the in the early 19th century that maybe are one reason that a number of people converted, probably. Uh, but anyway, um, some people on your, on your, on your, your father's father's uh, side did, and some didn't. The, um, so anyway, so Kurt Wolf, uh, he um he get he gets into publishing. He's he's a graduate student. Decides to get into publishing. Uh, he uh, now was he the first uh, to actually publish Kafka? He he is he he is the, he is present at what may be the first time Kafka's ever ushered into a publishing house. It sounds like, and he has a really entertaining account of Kafka. And he wound up publishing uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis in a journal for starters that that he r- ran. Is that right? That's right. He had started this sort of serial. I guess it's a little like Granta, uh, what we know today as Granta. It was it was called the Jungstatag, the Judgment Day, and uh, every three four months or so, another one would come out. And um, Franz Werfel, the Viennese writer, was working for my grandfather as a reader, and Werfel was the first to have read this thing. And, and I found this great note that my grandfather had sent Kafka in Prague that said, uh, Mr. Franz Werfel has told me very much about your latest novella. Is it called The Bug? Uh, that I would very much like to see it. Could you send it to me? Um, Die Wanze is the German for The Bug. And of course, there ensues this great back and forth where Kafka desperately does not want, if this thing is going to get published, does not want The Bug to be illustrated because it would ruin the entire effect of the story. Um, Kafka sounds kind of high maintenance, I got to say. Very high maintenance, but I, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so well worth it. And I, and where I tip my hat to my grandfather, who had a chance to publish James Joyce and just basically threw the, the query letter across. I would have done room. the same thing. I couldn't get past the first paragraph of Ulysses. I would have. Well, he did, he, he did have the foresight, even as Kafka never went back to press. He never went to reprint anything that he published of Kafka during Kafka's lifetime, he was, he could see that there was something there that was going to hold up. And so he does get credit there. And the James Joyce thing, who is this crazy professor who's writing me from Trieste and bad German? That's what uh, he said about Joyce. That's what he said about Joyce. Um, now we know the answer. We know. And, and <laughs> he laughed at himself. Um, but you can't be in this game, um, this publishing game, I think without a few stories like that are the ones mm. that got away. 
So he was. So who else did he did he uh, publish before? I mean, these are a lot of these are names Americans wouldn't recognize, but certainly he was part of the what the kind of radical left. I, I mean, he, he he as you said he, when he, he when he left Germany right after the burning of the Reichstag, it was probably as much for his connection to subversive circles as for being Jewish in terms of why he had reason to worry. That that's exactly right. So. Before World War One, there was this thriving expressionist literary scene, and everyone was obsessed with with what's new. Um, and my grandfather, he had a line that he would draw in the sand, and Dadaism was sort of beyond what he would embrace. <laughs> and later in his life, he came to regret some of the stuff he published before the war. But the important thing is, he was very successful from about 1911 to 1914, and then war breaks out. And everything changes. When the war finally ends, the Germany that results isn't going to be in any way congenial to the kind of stuff he wanted to publish. Mm -hmm. And through the 20s, things just get bleaker and bleaker. And he finally has to shut his his house down. He goes into exile. So a lot of this wealth that he had inherited and poured into the publishing house, he had in the form of a book collection, some artwork. And he sort of every five, six, seven years, he's auctioning off a bunch of it just to survive so -hmm. he can live while he's on the run and, and and things get really dicey when he finally makes it to the States. Right. So when he leaves, um, when he leaves Germany uh, in, in, I guess, 1933, he goes to France. Now at that point he has, uh, there's been a divorce between him and your father's mother. Your father is living with your mother in Germany uh, in France, uh, it, it, for a while, I mean, toward the end, it's kind of the worst of both worlds. Um, when the war breaks out, he, he's he's put in an internment camp because he's German. Exactly. And then when the Germans occupy France, his problem is that he's Jewish. And, or that he's, he's somebody who'd actually started to do a little work along right. with his second wife for the for the French foreign ministry, writing oh. leaflets that would be dropped over German territory. Or still. So very, very much in the crosshairs. And he even wrote um, for this German exile newspaper in Paris. He wrote this rave review of one of Thomas Mann's works that ran, I think, in 1940 or so, 39 or 40. So he would have been at the top of the list. So he's in Vichy, France, just trying to get a visa to get out. Right. And he does go to America. Now, uh, just to give give people a sense for how notorious he, he had become in Germany, when was it that his daughter Maria is is this right? She was let go. She had been working in a bookshop, and they fired her because they said you know they had found that her father was a dangerous radical or something, right? Culture Bolshevik, a culture Bolshevik. Um, yeah, at, at that point, the whole Nazi um, attitudes had taken hold. Um, you couldn't have a bookshop in Germany unless you belonged to some. League of Approved Bookshop Owners, and this would have been 38, 39. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, by then, yeah, Kurt had left Germany. But that was a a thing. And working on this book was to to actually lay this timeline down next to that timeline. So there's a timeline that, that all these letters and diaries were telling me on a very personal level. And then there was the timeline that history, the history books would tell me, for instance, I don't know about you, but when my understanding of the Holocaust had always been that it happened in death camps in the Polish woods Mm -hmm. and how else it happened, I I, details were were never taught to me. Tim Snyder wrote the Yale historians written this book, Bloodlands, where he goes into great detail about how there was this other thing with the invasion of the Soviet Union that the Nazis called the hunger plan, where they were going to willfully starve. Slavs, Jews, depopulate certainly the countryside of the Ukraine, Poland, the western part of the Soviet Union, and then invite German farmers to resettle it. And when I learn about that and I read alongside it, my dad's letters home from the front, where he's describing to his mother how well they're eating, mm-hmm. um, that, that was a gut punch. And and then to, to read a letter from my step-grandmother who's safely in New York where she raves about how, oh, since Pearl Harbor, I've loved America because there's so much will to prosecute the war. Because they're going to go fight your, yeah, your, your, uh, yeah, her, her, I, steps, her stepson. 
Her, um, her stepson is on the Russian front. Her stepdaughter is in Freiburg, will be bombed out of her apartment in a matter of months. And my grandmother is still in Munich, where there'd be air raids uh, again and again. So the and there were, bomb, there were close calls more. with the bombing involving either, was it uh, your father's sister or mother or both? Well, both. Um, I, I know that my grandmother in Munich had at least one bomb went through a roof and didn't explode. Or so that's the family lore. Mm-hmm. But Maria in Freiburg with her infant son, my that's cousin. Your, that's Jan, your father's sister, Maria. That's my father's sister, Maria. Um, they had to, to leave their apartment. They, I don't know if they were in the basement when it was struck, but it was uninhabitable at the end of one mm-hmm. of them. So, so, yeah. So your father, I mean, that was a really uh, a memorable part of the book. You know, it, it's just funny because like, you know, he's writing home about what he's eating. Who knows? It may be partly to reassure his mother that he's got plenty of eat to eat. Who knows? I mean, I gather you somebody like foods. It was probably heartfelt. But you're right. I mean, once you realize that the German plan was to take food from the locals, you know, feed it to the soldiers, ship a bunch back to Germany with the explicit hope that the locals would starve to death and free up room. And a lot of the and, you know, there was a, a certain amount of that. It happened. Um it it's weird. I mean, uh, yeah, no, there, there was and Soviet prisoners were intentionally starved and the food being shipped back was was also to prop up the regime, you know, to keep people fat and happy on the home front in case things started to go south yeah. with, with the war. And and I don't know how much my my dad knew um, about the hunger plan. Now, if you read the histories, they say that German soldiers were told that if you feed any locals or share food with locals, you should consider that food taken out of the mouth of a German child back home. Um, so clearly there was propaganda afoot. Um, I do remember my dad telling me that he had a girlfriend in the Ukraine. He was in one city in, in Ukraine for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And that he, he explicitly told me this, that he shared food with them. And it didn't seem like much of a tell in that detail until I dug into the letters right. and read the history Right. And then, okay. And then my dad, late in his life in the 80s, becomes involved in a U.S.-Soviet peace init- initiative, citizen-to-citizen citizen sort of thing. And now I see, okay, now you talked about the mysteries of moral responsibility. You know, maybe that's my dad grappling late in his life with some way he needs to reconnect mm-hmm. with, with human beings of another category. Now, uh, you... You ask your father at some point, I believe you ask him, but at some point he, someone asked him, did you, did you kill anybody? And he says, not knowingly. Uh, the, the, um, and he was a, I guess he was technically in the Luftwaffe when he was on the Eastern Front, but he was a, he didn't fly planes, drop bombs. He was, uh, kind of support. He, he drove a truck and, and provided, uh, stuff that uh, certainly facilitated the, uh, the work of, of the, the people in planes. But, um, and it's funny, I thought, at that point, I thought, well, if he was on the Eastern Front, um, at least, uh, my father, you know, my father was in the U.S. Army. I, I thought, well, at least my father, uh, wasn't trying to kill him. But then, uh, your father gets, uh, sent to the Western Front, becomes part of an anti-aircraft, uh, operation, right? And, and here's a sentence that really got my attention, uh, you write, there, somewhere between the German town of Geiklingen and Vianden in Luxembourg, he hunkered down in an anti-aircraft emplacement on a ridge exposed to the pounding of American artillery. Because um, my father was at the Battle of the Bulge, and his job was to direct artillery fire. I've never uh, told you this before. <laughs> I didn't realize it was relevant, but he was uh, he was lieutenant commanding a uh, a battery, an artillery battery, so there have been six or eight howitzers under his command and in addition he was the survey officer for the whole battalion so in some sense he was doing work that was supposed to improve the accuracy of all the artillery fire in the battalion um but i want to read uh so anyway this inspired me this morning i want to plug another book my my little sister did a self-published book once about my parents Available on Kindle, on Amazon. It's called For Posterity's Sake, because she wrote it for posterity's sake. Her name is Terry McKenzie. But I want to, um, so she, he wrote a little bit about the Battle of the Bulge. I just want to read what your father wrote and what my father wrote. Uh, 
He, in a letter home, he wrote, it's so dreadfully difficult for all of us, but we must stick with it and endure. I'm lying in a dugout, barely covered by a tarp. It's freezing cold outside, and a feeble sun relieves the long moonlit nights. It's dark now, which means no attacks from above. The artillery barrage, barrages provide the only Christmas music. Um, and so then my father, when my father wrote about the Battle of the Bulge, I mean, this isn't some kind of, uh, you know, re- remarkable, uh, consonants or anything, but they did both realize it was cold. That's for sure. My dad wrote, my dad wrote, the Battle of the Bulge was a long, bitter, cold battle. I don't like to think about it. Uh, there were counterattacks, many of them. Uh, and then he writes, elsewhere he writes, in the extreme cold, casualties died immediately, if not evacuated, and many men suffered frozen hands and feet. They went into to battle in all kinds of clothing, trying to keep warm. Uh, and then he writes a little later, uh, but all went forward with the same determination to crush the German resistance and get it over with it, uh, go, get it over with as soon as possible. And I regret to inform you, Alex, that your father was part of the German resistance. Uh, now the, ba- the Battle of the Bulge was a very far-flung thing. It's very unlikely, I think, that my father was trying to, was raining down shells in the vicinity of your father. But it just, it really kind of hit home. I, I mean, it's funny, you, uh, you know, you, you spend, and we'll get back, you know, we've already done, seen some of the kind of grappling you do, you've done with what your father did and, 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 and the question of culpability and so on. But I, I've long felt that like when soldiers at war, if they ask themselves, well, why am I trying to kill this guy on the other side? The answer is you were born in this country and yeah. he was born in that country. That's the way it works. There aren't many people. It doesn't matter how evil the regime is. There aren't many people, you know, who don't do what everybody else is doing and, and go, go in the army. Yeah. And, and I, I suspect that if, if my dad had known, say, when you came to my wedding mm-hmm. and my and met my dad, if he had known that your dad was on the other side of that line trying to crush the German resistance, in some kind of cosmic way, he would want to indicate thanks to hmm. your dad. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that leads to this very harrowing story that my dad never told me. He told my brother-in-law and only in a roundabout way. Did yeah, I, I was actually about to set that up with, with, with uh, I know what you're going to say. My father wrote, uh, another thing my father wrote, the Germans were, this is at, right after, and shortly after that, after the Battle of War, the Germans were obviously beaten, but continued to fight in groups, defending principal road junctions, and in some pa- places fighting bitterly. Most of these groups were commanded by SS officers. We continued a rapid advance, taking many prisoners, uh, our advance was in the direction of Gotha. We ran into stiff, stiff opposition and so on. Okay, so it's like end of, you know, it's clear what's going to happen. Right. Uh, now tell the story because this is fascinating. Yeah, so there's a group, you know, at this point, my dad's unit had been dissolved and, and there were these little bands that uh, reorganize and whoever the ranking person is. And, and actually from your dad's account, it sounds like it probably was an SS officer is in charge of about six or seven of these German soldiers, including my dad. Mm-hmm. And the consensus among them was this is the cause is lost. We need to turn ourselves in. And they were being commanded by somebody who was a true believer. Uh, or so is a story that my brother-in-law was told by my dad, not, not me. And, um, there was this argument, and when this commanding officer turned his back, one of the people in my dad's unit pulled out his Luger and shot the guy dead. Um, and they very quickly were taken prisoner just outside Wiesbaden. Um, mm-hmm. So actually, if your dad had been your Gotha, G-O-T-H-A, um, mm-hmm. it sounds like from the way you pronounced it, I could probably find out how close our respective <laughs> dads were to each other. But anyway... That was, there were strict orders that Martin Bormann, Hitler's number two, had sent down uh, that all defeatists were to be summarily executed. Well, in this particular instance, um, the people who were the defeatists ended up carrying the day, at least momentarily. Yeah. Uh, I applaud the initiative of that soldier who <laughs> shot the guy who was probably an SS. I mean, it's, 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 every death is in some sense a tragedy, but I got to think he saved lives. Probably including American ones and, and possibly including uh, your father's. Yeah, and that's, that is the, the weirdness of it all. Um, that how, how do you, 
I mean, that my, that my dad had American cousins, um, that, uh, as soon as he was taken prisoner, this GI from Chicago insisted upon, um, confiscating his camera that he somehow compensate for it, him for it. So it gave him a box of cigarettes that wound up being this, this cash that he could use for barter and, and help ease his way during captivity. And there was these little human moments embedded in it all. And then he emigrates over here and he becomes this absolutely devoted American um, in all of these, these cliched ways. Um, but at the same time, kind of holds on to, to kind of Bavarian culture and this longing mm-hmm. for the woods. There's this whole thing about the woods with Germans. I don't know where it comes from, but it must be from Wagner and all. But they just, they love their woods. And my dad loved the woods. And he had all these words to describe particular kinds of woods with this ratio of pines to deciduous. And it's, it just never left him. I mean, beer and Vorst and hmm. brass bands playing umpapa music and whatever. But at the same time, this country somehow just represented this promise that he desperately wanted to, to buy into. Yeah. So let's then, uh, pick up the story a little, uh, I guess a little before he's going to get to America. So Kurt Wolf has now gets to America right around the beginning. Uh, yeah, I guess a little before the American entry into the war. Um, and what year does, so he and his second wife, uh, Helen Wolf found Pantheon books, which as it happens, uh, I published two books with, although long after they, uh, parted ways with Pantheon. Um, but uh what what year does does he publish Pantheon? I mean I mean what what year do they do they uh found Pantheon? By the end of 41 they have an understanding with investors and I think early in 42 they have their their first publication. Um so they spent they arrive in March of 41 and they hole up in the New York Public Library for much of that summer trying to figure out what it is that doesn't exist in print in English in America that they could so I plug the gaps of, and um, they figured out there was there was enough, and there was a great curiosity, I think, because of the war mm-hmm. in sort of the European culture that was worth saving. You know, what was what were the Nazis destroying over there? And and Pantheon was a place people were going to go to find what it was. So they they brought a number of uh, European authors over. Now, were they the first uh, people to publish Camus in English, or I don't know if they were the first, but they definitely there were a number of French writers. Um, one of their collaborators was a guy named Jacques Schiffrin, yeah. whose son Andre ended up running Pantheon. Right. Um, for a long, long while. And, and Jacques was, had been hounded out of France because of his Jewish ancestry. Um, but had a great reputation, all sorts of fabulous connections with French writers. So there were four or five, including Camus, that they ended up publishing sometimes in these dual language editions. Um, they didn't do a lot of German stuff at first because the market wasn't real friendly to it. Um, although the one, um, the one exception was Grimm's fairy tales, which somehow became a very popular Christmas item. Even had that not been widely published in English before then? Apparently not. Maybe nothing of that on that order. I think it was a unabridged or close to Mm -hmm. unabridged edition. It was definitive in some way. And. Um, they they caught a huge break when W.H. Auden wrote this uh, over-the-top uh, review for the New York Times Book Review. And suddenly Pantheon had its first, maybe bestseller, overstates it a little bit, but it was a hit, a real hit right around holiday time. And they were, it was just enough to get a little wind in their sails. Okay. Um, so then they, uh, who else did they publish? Well, they published uh Pasternak, Dr. Shivago, that, that leads to the story of how they parted ways with Pantheon. But are there any other, uh, who else would you, would you mention in the, um, like in the late forties, fifties? Yeah, there was, um, there was a Sicilian novelist named De Lampedusa, a nobleman who mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Leopard. That's something of a classic. Um, and that did pretty well. Their book of the month club really helped them out. Um, would occasionally pick a Pantheon book and that would guarantee a huge pre-sale. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that really saved Pantheon was um, the wife of Paul Mellon, the Pittsburgh Mellons, the very wealthy philanthropist, Mary Mellon was, was really into Carl Jung 
And she bankrolled this whole series called the Bullingen series that Pantheon became kind of the curator of. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were all these Jungian themed books that would come out under that imprint. And this melon money would, would flow in every month. And it wasn't a whole lot, but it was just enough to pay salaries for Kurt and Helen because their agreement when Pantheon was founded was that they wouldn't take a salary until the house broke into the black. Okay. Uh, and Bollingen, is it, did that wind up at Princeton University Press or is that a different Bollingen series? No, it's exactly the same. And uh-huh. Bollingen is, is that town on the Lake of Zurich where Jung lived that, that lent its name to the series. But the PU Press ended up taking it over after Helen and Kurt left Pantheon. Okay, yeah. So they, they left. I mean, I mentioned Dr. Shivago. They brought that book in. And and the, this uh, guy who was I mean they wound up losing a power struggle at Pantheon this, and, and and then uh, before long they were approached by uh, Jovanovich of Harcourt Brace and later Harcourt Brace Jovanovich um, about having their own imprint uh, at at HBJ and I remember uh, this this went you know I, I guess continued until Helen's death she died later than. Uh, he did. I, I mean, did it continue that? Because I remember books that said they would say a Helen and Kurt Wolf book on, the, you know, I guess on the spine, certainly on the title page um, that were published by HBJ. Um, but, the, but but so he they brought Dr. Zhivago over. And then I guess the guy who we who was his in-house rival or something had 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 considered that a losing proposition, but then once it was a hit, took credit for it. And I don't know if this, did this play a big role in the, in their, in their, in their tension kind of coming to a head? Yeah, it was more symptom than cause certainly, but it it wasn't just this rival on the editorial side. There were also members of the board, uh, the board of Pantheon who were restless and, and they'd had plenty of, of clunkers too. I mean, things that just weren't commercially successful and, I think the feeling was twofold. We've had not just Dr. Zhivago, but the year prior to that, Gift from the Sea, Anne Morrow Lindbergh's book was a huge seller too. So they do really well. And then there's all this buzz on Wall Street beginning in the late 50s that book publishers need to go the textbook route because all these uh, school districts will buy in bulk and baby boom needs to be educated. And that's where the money was. And that was just totally at odds with what Helen and Kurt wanted mm-hmm. to do. And they tried to adjudicate it. They moved to, to Europe and kind of set up an ostensible Pantheon European branch. Um, but then things just became untenable. So they, they left and cashed out their shares. But had a, had a long publishing life uh, with HBJ. I mean, he didn't live all that long, but she stayed active. I mean, she, she, I mean, I remember the time when the, Far and away, the biggest, well, certainly the biggest kind of intellectual book was uh, The Name of the Rose, Umberto Eco. That was her book, right? That was her book. So she had 30 years. after. So Kurt dies in 63. The thing with Pantheon comes to a head around 59. They're for about 18 months. They're completely unaffiliated. Then Jovanovich brings them aboard by 61. So Kurt only had a couple of years really in that imprint partnership. But Helen for the next three decades, um, continued to do it. And not just German authors, a lot of French, Hungarian, Italian, um, Echo, Calvino. Um, oh, Italo Calvino, yeah. He was hot also at, the, at around the same time, yeah. Yeah, so it was um, very much carrying on that. I, I think what they lent HBJ, which was big into textbooks and even went, well, I think they bought a, a share in SeaWorld or something in San Diego. <laughs> um, talk about diversification, but it bought them a little cultural cred um, that they could point to this, uh, you know, intellectual uh, sliver of the business that, that was still getting taken seriously in the pages of book reviews and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, one more thing about Kurt. Well, I mean, he was just an amazing figure. I mean, I, I don't uh, know if we've, Done him justice. He was, uh, he was at least three dimensional. Um, there was something about the way he died that, well, you kind of allude to this, uh, but that I, I, by the time he dies, I felt I had gotten to know him well enough to consider it 
in a certain sense, a natural way for him to die. He had almost predicted it in the same vein. Do you want to you want to talk about this? Yeah, he he was kind of famously unhandy and um, a bit of the absent, dreamy, absent minded professor quality to him. I mean, he was a pretty good businessman, so I don't want to sell him short on that score. But his own father had been a professor, a music professor and conductor, and was always kind of lost in some melody uh, he composed, too. And I think Kurt had a little bit of that. Um, he, he just wanted to to partake of life and all of its great pleasures. Um, and he did say sometime shortly before he died, that I will die of my own carelessness. And he ended up trying to cross um, a very narrow opening between two buildings in this little German town he was visiting in 1963. And a truck was backing into this opening and he miscalculated how much time he would have to make it across. So he thought he could beat the truck and he didn't. Exactly. And he gets pinned pinned against a post. What what I, I mean, uh, I was... What I was thinking of when I said it seemed natural was there was just a certain audacity to him, right? I mean, he he had a kind of self-confidence. You see that in, in the breakup with Pantheon. It's like he's not going out of his way to be diplomatic. I mean, the letters you quote from where he's like laying down the, the law at the risk of losing the power struggle, which he does. Um, you know, he just seems to be a, perf- a person of, you know, uh, of uh, great confidence, uh, a lover of life. Uh, not, not the person to shy away from a little bit of a risk, I guess. That's kind of what I, what I thought yeah. of. And, and, and even boring on reckless. And there, there's one letter, um, I, I yelped a little bit when I discovered it very late in the process, but it was a letter that Helen, his second wife wrote to Elizabeth, my grandmother, Kurt's first wife after his death. And in it, she talks about, very, very frankly about how reckless he was, how, uh, heedless of caution he was, how he was like an amiable child you always wanted to try to protect. It was the most amazingly intimate letter, but I suppose the two women who were married to this one man who was just passed away can share those kinds of intimacies. And, and that was who he was. I mean, at his core and that, that recklessness, I mean, just deciding that you're going to spend untold amounts of money to bring to market something that may find its audience, you know, 50 years on, uh, like Kafka um, or or De Lampedusa or one of these. Uh, Robert Walser is a writer from uh, a Swiss writer from Kurt's time in the teens in Germany that he published who really wasn't known or successful. But there are people today who love his writing. Um, and I suggest it's this kind of little annuities that he would mm-hmm. he would invest in. Um to that would that would take years to pay off but but they would eventually pay off it's almost as if he wanted that posterity to uh to borrow a phrase from your sister um posterity to pass judgment rather than than these vulgar people that he's sharing the present yeah he was a kind of purist i mean that's the the funny thing i mean he was socially in a certain sense very adroit and successful uh but uh he also he wouldn't compromise on the physical quality of the books. And, uh, you know, I really, uh, I really admired that. He, there, there's one more anecdote from your childhood, your, your, I guess, last encounter with him. You were, you were very young having to do with this cash register because I'll let you tell the story, but it, he just seems to have been someone who is, uh, what, like extravagant in his charmingness. <laughs> like, 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 uh, wanting to be charming and willing to, uh, invest in that, if that makes sense. Tell, tell the story. Well, the story makes that point literally, I suppose. So my dad, who, whose attitude toward life was the polar opposite of his own father's, he'd lived through the war. He'd been actually deprived of food. I think that obsession with food my dad had. As a prisoner because- of war, we should say your, your dad subsisted for a time on, Fewer calories than the uh, some convention or other, some law of war or another uh, had had deemed the minimum. Uh, but anyway, yeah, go ahead with the story. And the, and the nannies that raised my my dad and aunt were were on orders to to be very sparing in what they gave them. So, um, yeah. So my dad, um, my dad comes um, 
you're going to have to root me in this story again. Um, well, there's a uh, it's the cash register. Yes, that, the cash register. I'm thinking yeah. food, and it's the cash register. Yeah. So my dad, because he was such a um, uh, such an opponent of of extravagance and believed that there would always be that rainy day, had given me when I was five or six years old a red piggy bank that looked like a a cash register. You put a coin in and you pulled this lever and it would read right up in the numerals exactly how much was in there. And it was programmed to pop open when it hit 10 bucks. And not until then. And not until then. And I was spending money on all the things that six-year-old boys spend money on. So making no progress at all. And court paid a visit to our home one day and I showed him this thing and he was instantly reaching into his pocket and starting to feed this thing and pulling the lever. I mean, it was Vegas slot machine time. And, and till finally the thing pops open and looking back and hearing all these stories about him, it seems like the most emblematic possible Mm -hmm. um, uh, anecdote of, of what he, I mean, almost, he was almost, I think, um, flouting the will of my father because Mm -hmm. um, he or his his own wife Helen, who, who were both my dad and Helen were very similar in their in their caution and um, and Kurt was still, as you say, extravagant in his mm-hmm. desire to win people over. Now I'm not sure we've we've even mentioned your father's name. It's Nico. It was it was Nicholas, I guess, at birth. Um, and uh, you said he was in some ways the opposite of your grandfather of Kurt. Uh, I mean, certainly when I met him, I I, I didn't have that much interaction with him, but he seemed. Well, not too reserved, uh, very proper, kind of European. I don't really remember whether I thought of him as, as having an accent. You say there was kind of some controversy over that. Your friend sometimes claimed he did. You never, you didn't see it or hear it. But um, what, uh, well, why don't you talk about him and, and the ways in which he was different from uh, your grandfather and why you think that was? I think he just craved um, the normalcy that had been denied him and, my grandfather had grown up so comfortably in, in Bonn, you know, this very stable bourgeois family, um, always plenty to eat, um, plenty of pleasures to partake of. Um, even the war, World War One, when he served as an officer, he was away from the worst of it. Um, and my dad, uh, this very strict upbringing, uh, there was this vogue at the time called Fletcherism, where you could only swallow food after you chewed it a certain number of times and no, no beverage with your dinner. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. It was, um, and he, he complained about it. I remember when I was young, he talked about the scars that he still had from that. Um, and then, you know, before you realize it, you're in boarding school and then suddenly you're in the labor service, which is this paramilitary organization, the Nazis set up. You, you've been going to Hitler youth meetings in boarding school, and then you're drafted and sent to the Russian front. And uh, you look around at your cohort, the German men of that age, and one out of every two would not survive their 20s. And Mm. so he somehow emerges from this. And I completely understand. He thinks he's won the lottery when he somehow gets a student visa in 1948 to come over, sponsored by his now American citizen father, come over to study. And has no interest in revisiting the past, only wants to hop aboard whatever 1950s thing train is leaving the station and marries an American woman, a wasp from Fairfield County, Connecticut, and starts a family. And um, I get it. I understand why he wasn't looking back. Mm -hmm. And that I did now, I don't, I don't know that I, I could have until my dad had passed away because it, um, I think he looked at it as this gift that he gave us, this this um, this break from the old country, and and there was that one moment where I um, I had a friend coming visit us. We were in Germany, and a friend from Zurich was coming up to visit, and we decided we wanted to go out to Dachau. It just seemed like a place to see. And mentioned to my dad we'd be going out to Dachau the next morning, and he said, "Why would you want to do that?" Mm-hmm. And it sounds very harsh now when I, when I, when was story. this, what, what year was this roughly? This would have been in the late well, mid seventies. 
Okay. So that is that like when did Germany start making a point of fes- of really revisiting its past honestly? Because there was a period of I don't know if you want to call it denial, but there was a period before Germans made such a point yeah. of acknowledging culpability. And maybe this was like around the hinge point or something. I don't know. I think it was. I think it was because I remember when we got off the S-Bahn in Dachau, Dachau's maybe 20 minute, 30 minute S-Bahn ride out from Munich. There was a woman on the platform handing out leaflets, um, a local woman that were basically asking people who were coming to visit the concentration camp, not to hold current day Dachauers responsible for what was done by their ancestors. And um, that made as big an impression on me as the actual exhibits. Um, and, and my dad's getting back to my dad's reaction when I told him that we, we were going to do this. I, I really do think that he had, he had, he felt he had worked so hard to shield us off from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and why, why do you want to revisit it? Well, at the time, I didn't feel I had to explain to him why. Um, and when I share with with others that story, I I definitely said, boy, that does sound awfully harsh. Like, was he unwilling to revisit it? And I, I, I think of him as somebody who fled it, you know, who who, who didn't do this for Gangenheit's Alfar Beichung because already a third of his life had, had gone by and here was an opportunity to make the most of of the rest of his life. And he wanted to throw himself headlong into that. And that was, that was the gift for the next generation too. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a point where you ask him, did he know about the death camps? Right. I did. It was, we took a, one of the, one of the few things you actually interrogated him about, uh, while he was yeah, alive. Yeah. And you know, when I, I talked to other Germans about that, they, at least of our generation, they almost universally say, oh, everybody knew about them. And my dad said he didn't. He knew about concentration camps, um, but he didn't know about the death camps. And at the same time, he told me he had actually spent a night in Auschwitz when he was um, relocating from one theater of war to another. Um, and I, I do go in the book into a little bit of a, okay, could he be telling me the truth? Um, is it possible that he was oblivious because he was out on the front lines and was dealing with his own particulars of prosecuting the, the Nazis' war. And um, it would be more likely, in fact, that civilians sort of back home would, would hear from people returning from mm-hmm. the front of what was going on. But I'll never know. I'll never know. I know what he told me. Um, I have a sense of what he did when he was in the East where I know atrocities took place. I know that just because he was in the Wehrmacht and not in the SS doesn't mean that he wouldn't have been conscripted into committing atrocities. Um, but I suspect from what I know about where atrocities took place and where I know he was at certain times because of the postmarks on letters home, mm-hmm. um, I'm fairly confident that that could be ruled out. Um, but I, from the whole investigation, I'm not sure I can... I can be any more sure than I was going here. We did confirm uh, what he said about spending a night in uh, Auschwitz, right? You found a postcard with an Auschwitz uh, postmark written by him. Is that right? That's right. A letter home. And um, a letter. like every German postage stamp of the era, it has Hitler on in profile on it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was quite a combination to see those three things, the Hitler stamp, the Auschwitz postmark, and my dad's handwriting. Um but yeah, it's, I mean, once you, I guess the, the, the project that, that falls to us and our generation is just to try to make sure that nobody lands in that position where you're forced to choose um, between committing these horrendous crimes and betraying your country. Mm-hmm. And, and if we can somehow keep, keep countries as they're constituted from ever reaching that fork in the road, or putting their citizens at that fork in the road, um, then we've achieved at least something. Mm-hmm. The um, he uh, 
He was a great appreciator of beauty, we should say. I think. I mean, I mean, it's you know, your book's about a lot of things, but both both of the two main figures in their own ways events that. I mean, you know, it, it sounds like Kurt Wolf's interest in publishing was partly genuinely aesthetic. Uh, they um, and your father, you know, he wound up uh, a chemist. Uh, and really, I think it sounds like found genuine beauty in nature ne- near the end of his life when he's on his, uh, I guess close to his deathbed. He says something to your mother to that, uh, effect. He's kind of marveling. There's some, I, I, you won't remember the exact line, but you probably know what I mean. Um, and yeah, he was, it, yeah, go ahead. It, it, it was a, it was a moment looking out the window at three in the morning and just seeing, seeing the moon in the sky. And, and then he, he felt, obliged to report what he had seen to my mother. I thought that was the most meaningful part of it. But, um, but yeah, he was, he was, uh, he said nature is going about its rounds or something. Nature. Yeah. 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 That's exactly. It's just nature going about its rounds. Um, you know, all all quiet on the Western front, I guess, (laughs) um, in some weird way, but, uh, but yeah, for my dad, it was music mostly, um, Mm -hmm. was where he, he found his, his pleasure in, in the aesthetic, but that that kind of leads me to consider the irony of all this is that um, all these people in my family love beautiful things. They could afford beautiful things. They were prosperous. Uh, they collected art and books and made music. And um, and this was this thing that they felt so lucky to be be around. And they had friends and neighbors who were Jewish who loved them just as much. And I think that's the the thing that my dad and his mom uh just that was that was the burden they bore that they had neighbors and friends that uh they lost um and and they didn't do anything i'm not going to say they couldn't do anything but they didn't do anything um to keep that from happening and these people were as invested in german culture uh as anybody they were germans and Many of them had been decorated for service in World War One, um, and I mean that to me is is the great the great tragedy. And um, and, and I I suppose it's harsh in some on some level. But toward the end of the book, I I wonder if this whole Bildungsbürgertum this is the the, the upper middle class that's devoted to all the artistic and beauty and aesthetics whether they were so devoted to it that they just stayed in their salon and consumed mm-hmm. it and enjoyed it and, you know, enshrined it when they should have been engaged in politics. Politics is dirty and grubby, nowhere more so than in Germany, Lord knows, between the Kaiser and, you know, the, the late forties. But, um, you know, that to me is sort of the great lesson. We, we just need to be alert. And, um, and that's where all sorts of Germans, not just my, ancestors, but also to Germans just fell asleep on the job. And so you're talking about before the time when getting engaged in politics would have meant to endanger their own lives or at least their own freedom um, that would, would have gotten them wound in, in either dead or in prison. Yes. And I don't know when that was exactly, but there was a time after which that was the choice. Yeah. And it was it was the frog in the pot. You know, yeah. it, it was so you, you had your your democracy, the Weimar Republic. But of, of course, it was a very brittle one because Germany had no tradition of it, and all these mm-hmm. right-wing elements were still pulling levers behind the scenes and um, were willing to do all sorts of thuggish things in order to overthrow it. And um, so, the, the period between Versailles and thirty-three, when the Reichstag burned, was really those, you know, those thirteen, fourteen years were were when you might have had a chance to stand up and keep it from coming. And I begin the book with this scene of my dad and I interacting around the Watergate hearings. And he overreacts to some, the the Saturday night massacre when Nixon fires a special prosecutor and he likens it in a, in a moment of um, momentary outburst to the Gestapo. And, um, you know, I didn't entirely understand what he meant when he said that, of course I was 15 and, uh, but by the end of this whole exercise, I had a, a better understanding and I understood why he was so jealous of 
of American democracy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right word, but just, he just felt that he'd been given this chance in this country. And I can't even begin to imagine what he would think uh, if he had been alive in 2016 and in the aftermath of that. But um, I say that I couldn't even imagine. And then I spent some pages in the book (laughs) sketching it out. So um, yeah. So, so it's, you've introduced this word at the beginning of here of the mysteries of moral responsibility and, um, it's, it's a great word. I'm going to adopt it with your permission. And, um, I'm afraid I've already trademarked it. Yeah. Well, I'll pay you royalties for we'll, it. We'll talk. My people can talk to your people. There we go. Um, the, uh, one more, uh, along those lines, I mean, just to give, you know, uh, we're, 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 uh, close to the end of our lot of time, but the, um, to give people a sense for how far you pursue the question of moral responsibility, you're, Father's mother's maiden name was Merck, as in the pharmaceutical giant. And, uh, in fact, I think, I mean, it was originally established in Europe, I guess, but I think her uncle established the American outpost for Merck. Is that right? And so, so anyway, there's, she's deeply embedded in the Merck, uh, uh, you know, by, by birth, not by choice, but in the, in the Merck, uh, empire. And you get into even that, which which cuts so many ways. I mean, for one thing, you know, Hitler, we now have good reason to believe, was uh, taking both uh, opiates and amphetamines. Some of those drugs were coming from Merck. Apparently, when the Allies bombed uh, a Merck factory, it was something of a problem for Hitler, uh, drug-wise. Right. Yeah, uh, there, there's a book that came out in, um, called Blitzed that gets into this in some detail, but it makes the argument that, that Hitler went cold turkey um, on Oikodal, this, it's essentially Oxycontin, what we know today as Oxycontin, mm-hmm. that he had been prescribed by his personal f- physician. And when the Merck factory was bombed, he could no longer get it. And it contributed, the argument in the book is that it contributed through 44 and into early 45 to Hitler's going into this bunker of madness and delusion is the way the, the writer. But wouldn't he eventually? Oh, well, it's the other guy's thesis. I won't argue with you about it. But um, I mean, anyway, the uh, apparently you can certainly imagine that the drugs, I mean, sometimes he would take opiates and amphetamines at the same time. You can certainly imagine they account for some of the bursts of insanity, grandiosity, uh, intemperance, the various things he's associated with. Um and then there's the fact that I guess Merck uh, was providing chemicals involved in fuel that was used in, you know, there's a whole lot of things, right? And so you get into that, which is, I, I just, you know, we can, if you want to say something more about it, you can. I just wanted to give people a sense for the uh, the dimensions of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the, <laughs> the implications came at me fast and furious. And again, um, stuff I didn't know, really, until I, I got over there. And I... The the Merck that people in the States know, while there was that 1871, that great uncle or whatever went over there to found it, because of the trading with the Enemy Act in World War One, it was expropriated by the U.S. government. So the two companies are no longer connected. But the Merck that's in Germany, um, which is my family more directly, has really done a pretty thorough job. What I know about um Merck and its implication in the war effort is a result of a uh, history that was commissioned by Merck to four independent historians. They were told they were given free run of the archives and told to go anywhere that it led. Um, so there is this, this determination. It's belated. Um, it's not done with the kind of gusto maybe that it ought to be, but it, it's being done in Germany pretty broadly, pretty widely, and with the chips fall where they may attitude. Um, it's just the culture over there, and it's a culture that we're not really seeing in the States when it comes to slavery and Jim Crow. There's still a lot of skirmishing, as we know, over whether these examinations should take place at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I think uh, your grandfather would be uh, happy with the with with the book. It's it, it really is nicely produced. I mean, I really like the jacket, the interior design. I I like very much, and I, I've become something of a student of interior design over the years. I was wondering. So, end papers, of course, is a pun. End papers are are things in books, uh, and then uh, people can fill out the other half of the pun by now, probably. But um, I was wondering, is, does this qualify as an end paper? You've got this chart 
of the family, um, the family tree complete with like when people converted, if they did, and, and which ones were, were Christians and which ones were Jews and so on. Is that technically an end paper? That's, that's more technically a frontispiece. A frontispiece. Um, okay. So, what so it, the, the end papers are actually, is the, I mean, just, it makes the metaphor even more apt. It, it's, it's what connects the hard covers to the, to the soft pages. It's, it's this piece of paper. Oh, right that's here. the end paper. Okay. Those are the end papers. Yeah. And back in the day, in a lot of Kurt Wolf's books, they would be decorative. Um, uh-huh. Quite stunning, actually. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, and the cover you mentioned, this particular woodcut is one that Kurt himself used um, in a graphic novel by a Belgian artist named Franz Mazarel. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's a, it's an homage to the old Kurt Wolf. Well, it's funny. It looks so contemporary. I mean, it looks retro contemporary, but it looks contemporary, right? Well, you know, you, you just nailed it there. I mean, that's the aesthetic. That's the early 20th century. It's the stuff that kind of, you know, it will cycle back into style at some point. And, and that's that whole annuity phenomenon, I think. Um, but it, yeah, it really, it worked for me on a lot of levels. It's the, um, to that sense of discovery and uh, it's, it's sort of the figure trying to make sense of all this printed matter, which was very much my own experience, but also what, what Kurt's publishing career was like, it, certainly at the outset where Das Neue, the new, w- was what was so important to him. And, and this image, which is just one of, of 60 or 70 in a graphic novel, but it happens to speak very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and the designer was clever and actually right. did a little scene here. So it is like an end paper that crosses. Now, I imagine uh, this figure, we can say for our podcast listeners, this is one of those uh, library, you know, in-home libraries that's so vast that you need a ladder to get to the top shelves. And there's a there's a figure uh, looking at a book, has climbed a ladder, looking at a book. There's almost a, an aura of discovery about it. There's there's a kind of impact that's being had where he is reading the book, and I just kind of imagine that being you leafing through all these documents and trying to um, unearth this uh, this story. Yeah, it was it, it was um it wasn't my title. My editor uh, at Grove, Peter Blackstock, uh, it's good came up with it, and I I I, I was. Delighted, instantly <laughs> discarded our working title when it no, came You're lucky out. to have an editor who can come up with a title like that. That's good. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Alex. Anything else you want to say about the book before we go? I, I can say I can recommend the uh, Audible version, which is mainly the way I imbibed it. It's available, very, very ably narrated, not by you, but by a true professional. Yeah, who's uh, Robert Fass, whose wife is from Vienna, I believe. And hmm. so he had some. Some very he handles words. the German words well. Yes, he, he does indeed. He's he's first rate. Yeah, but thanks. Yes. Well, thank you. Congratulations, uh, and I'm sure uh, we will talk soon. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>